0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org.
1: So once again, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Good morning. I want to thank the sound guys. They did a great job. I was prepped for this moment. Still, thank you, Tyler, for preparing me on the right microphone to get, and everything worked out great. You guys give a hand clap to the guys. They work really hard to try to make this stuff work, and they always have a plan. Uh, My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to welcome you. As Eric said, the Green Kingdom is not our normal kingdom. But we did get displaced from our building, and uh, one of our fire sprinkler pipes bursted. The fire sprinkler system is the gift that continues to give to us here at Providence and they had one, he had one last final say and, uh, and, and burst it. And so we have our sheetrock kind of torn out from four feet. They're going to have to remediate the building and do a lot of work in there. And so until uh, that gets done... We're going to be in here. And just as an update of what's going on over there, they have fully uh, remediated the building as far as getting it dry and getting all of the, uh, the moisture out of there with carpet being pulled up and our stage was ripped out. Um, lots of things been pulled out and then sheetrock being cut out. But right now what they're waiting on is actually for the company to come in to fix the actual fire sprinkler system. The reason that that has to be done before anything else is done is because there is no telling if that was the only break. And so they have to kind of pressurize and test this thing. If you're wondering how in the world that flooded so much in only a 10 minute period. It's because those sprinkler systems are rated to drop 800 gallons of water per minute. And that's because it's trying to save your lives and my life. If there were to be a fire, the negative side of that is when there's no fire. Okay. And so, um, it, the, a lot of the water came out and it's basically a pressurized system. So they're going to have to repressurize it again, see if there's any more breaks. And they'd rather do that when we don't have any work done rather than war- ruining the work that you get done. Uh, just to give you an idea of why they haven't already come is whenever we got on the phone with them, they had 100 businesses with the same problem in the city of Houston. So we joined the ranks of the many. Okay. Uh, Really encouraging news before I jump into the text is on the flip side of us being displaced from our rental facility, we closed on property on land on Wednesday in Providence. We can celebrate that. So we are now the owners of 4.07 acres of property on timber forest that by the grace of God, as we raise some more funds, we'll be able to build on soon and start start to kind of clear the land, and so we're really excited about that. So we'll talk more about that at our anniversary members meeting next Sunday. Providence turns eight years old in the name of the Lord. So hopefully you guys can sign up for that. There'll be more information about that. Really by sign up, we just mean let us know you're going to be there so we can plan for the Rapscallion children, okay? All right, let's jump in. So as Eric said, we're in a series called Eyes Full of Grace. We've been walking with Jesus from the transfiguration story which is really the turning point in the gospels where Jesus turns his eyes to Jerusalem to accomplish the work that he was sent by the father to accomplish, namely to die on the cross at Calvary for the sins of the world. And so we're going to be walking from the transfiguration all the way into Easter. As, as we approach Easter as a church, we wanted to talk through what is it that Jesus is teaching his disciples in those final days on earth. And the reason for that is really simple. When If a person is able to know that it's their final days on earth, which you and I both know, or we all know, that it's unlikely that we get that opportunity. Uh, We're not going to know when our day is to go uh, and to be with the Lord. But when you do get an inkling, whether it's a medical diagnosis or uh, some premonition that you may get that it's the end, you typically change the things that you do and you change the things that you say and you change the people that you want to be around, right? Right. Um, it's, kind of, it's the old Tim McGraw, live like you're dying, right? This is the idea. Uh, I don't agree with his, uh, his uh, I guess, conclusions about what you should do. I don't think riding the bull is, is as, as important as maybe talking to your kids. But nonetheless, you start to kind of lean in. You know these are final conversations. And what happens with Jesus here is intriguing because he doesn't just have these conversations, but even as he's teaching and the scribes are present and the crowds are present and the Pharisees are present, Jesus regularly turns to the disciples and talks to them in their presence. So it's like he almost wants the disciples to hear what he's saying because he knows that they're going to understand and have a responsibility to apply that which he's teaching in a unique way that the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds are not interested in hearing. Um, Most of the time the scribes are looking to catch Christ in some sort of, uh, I guess, legal conundrum with the Old Testament. The Pharisees are the same way. He turns to the disciples and he leans into them. And so if you haven't listened to the podcast, I wanted to recap briefly, because particularly these three, first three stories, they, they layer pretty neatly together. And it's, it's obvious to me whenever I read it, but it's not as obvious if you are just skimming it and you don't come with the context of the transfiguration being the turn to the cross. And so I wanted to briefly recap where we've been to frame where we're going to go this morning. So we start with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus transfigures before the eyes of his three disciples, and he's visited by Enoch and Elijah, uh, who, re- who represent, Eric, Eric taught us, uh, represent the law and the prophets. Um, they're coming to testify to the glory of Jesus as the Son of God, who has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets. They make their way to manifestation in the person of Jesus Christ. And he, and he reveals himself not just as a, as a Galilean peasant, not just as a Nazarite, but he reveals himself on this mountain as the glorious son of God. It's the first time they see him as this. It baffles Peter so much that he wants to build tabernacles, which is, a, this makes sense for a Jew. When they saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai, the first thing they did was build a tabernacle for his presence. So Peter, don't give him too hard of a time. He's doing what a good Jew would do. He says, let's build tents we got to build a place for your presence. This is the almighty God in the flesh, right? This is the idea. But Jesus wasn't building, he wasn't revealing himself for that purpose. He was revealing himself to his disciples so they would know who he was so that when he died on the cross, they would not despair, but they'd be reminded he will come and he will rise again and that his kingdom is not of this world. So the first lesson of the transfiguration is this. Christ is the glorious son of God. God incarnate come to earth to reveal to us our glory hungers and to satisfy our deepest glory hungers. That you and I, we, what the Bible says is we hew out cisterns or wells for ourselves in order to satisfy our deep glory hungers, but none of those wells satisfy. That's what the prophets said to Israel. They said, you keep going to your own wells and you drink sand, but you won't come to me, the fountain, and drink from everlasting water. Jesus shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration to say, I'm everything you've always wanted. I'm everything you've always needed. You find your complete consummation of satisfaction in me. That's what it means that Christ is glorious. Eric did a great job with this text. He said, it's not that Christ is glorious because he's bright and shiny. Christ is glorious because glory refers to the totality of what it means to be God, both fully gracious and fully just, merciful and kind, but also powerful and and allowing the recompense of the wicked to fall on their own heads. The the God in his totality is everything that we're not, and he's completely holy. This means the glory of God. This is why when Isaiah said, the glory of God filled the temple, and when it did, Isaiah fell upon his face and said, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. The first thing he recognized when he saw God's glory was what he wasn't. This is what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then immediately they come down the mountain and they're met with a father who has a son who is uh, regularly paralyzed through seizures. But there's also not just a medical diagnosis, there's a demonic element that there's a demon that this unclean spirit causes him when he falls into seizures to throw himself into fires or water to destroy him, to to kill the kid. And the father's completely helpless. He runs to the feet of Jesus and says, please, if you can help him, please help him. And Jesus uh, in in the book of Mark says, if I can help him. Everything's possible for him who believes. And we get this famous line from the Father, which you and I should claim for our own. I believe, help my unbelief. This dichotomy that you and I all live in, which is that we want to believe, we do believe, but oh God, help my unbelief. I'm not really believing always, right? And that in the midst of that dichotomy, that mixed up mess of a human being that this Father is, what does Jesus do? He takes that little faith and he heals the boy. So the first thing that Jesus teaches us after teaching us that he is the glorious one, is that we access that glory and experience that glory by faith alone. That's the only way. We experience the glory of Christ, everything that you and I were created to experience only through faith. And that what we have to recognize in order to really have faith is that we don't have it. <laughs> and that we, we struggle to have it, we fight to have it, and that at best we can get to the point where we say, I believe, and then help my unbelief. And now that follows, and it trails back to where we are right now, jumping in the text, which is that Jesus begins to teach about greatness. Now, you might think that these things don't follow. They definitely do, especially for the disciples. Let me walk you through the disciples' logic here. Jesus is a glorious king. They have believed in Jesus, so they're at the ground floor of this king who's coming, right? So think about it. The disciples have to think they're Caesar. Caesar's going to get supplanted. Jesus is going to sit on the throne. They're at the ground floor, so they're really asking the question, what do we need to do in order to get really high positions in this kingdom? Anybody else making sense of this? You're a part of a startup. That startup is Google. And now you're like, so how do you become CFO of Google? I know you got the CEO thing handled, right? If you were talking to Steve Jobs as Apple was blowing up, you'd probably be like, so how do I get a board member position? What are you looking for in board members? This is the disciples' question to Christ. What does it mean to be great in your kingdom? Kind of makes sense, right? Jesus is going to answer this as we should come to expect Jesus to namely by turning the question on its head and answering in the way that you and I never never thought he would. He's not going to answer it in the way that Caesar would, and honestly, he's not going to answer it even in the reverse. He's going to do a perfectly Christ-like thing to do, which is to make us think deeply about the idea of greatness. And so I want to do three things this morning. Number one, I want to talk about what Jesus is up to here. Number two, I want to talk about why it's so difficult to apply what Jesus says here. And then number three, I want to talk particularly, and this is important. Why does Jesus use children? I don't think it's incidental. I think it's fundamental. Why does Jesus use children as the analogy? So before we hop in, bow your heads with me. Let me pray for us and ask the Spirit to help us. Father, um, even now, um, we just want to recognize we need your help. Holy Spirit, even as we begin to talk about humility and greatness, we want to humble ourselves right at the outset. We don't have what it takes to ascertain any knowledge apart from your help to illuminate your word. And so now we come to you like children with open hands asking for sustenance, asking for the bread while we're hungry. We need your word. And Lord, we also ask you that as your word comes to us that we would have the sensitive ears to hear the sensitive heart to feel, and the courage to apply that which is really difficult. We need you right now, God, and, and we ask for your help in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, let's start in verse number one, chapter 18. It says, at that time, his disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this, this uh, scenario actually plays itself out a little bit differently in different gospels. On one recording of the gospel, I believe it's Mark, Jesus actually has to confront them about it because they're having this conversation among themselves as they walk along the way. And so Jesus shows up to their conversations. What are you guys talking about? It's kind of like when your mom catches you in that conversation you shouldn't have had. It's like, what are you guys talking about? Nothing. What do you mean? We weren't even talking. So either way, in this particular instance, they ask Jesus point blank, who is the greatest in your kingdom? And so Jesus, of course, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Jesus calls a baby to the midst and says, come and watch this with me. And then says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, but you're not willing to turn and become like this baby, you got no hope. And then he doubles down and says, "And if you want to be the greatest, you have to humble yourself like this one." Now, there's a lot of things, and I think we need to start. Where what does this text not mean? (laughs) Because I've heard some really quirky interpretations of this text. Let me say some things. Number one, this is not an encouragement to child likeness. That's an encouragement to maintain immaturity for the rest of your life. We know this because of the Bible right? The Bible doesn't encourage that immaturity. In fact, Paul would say that when I was a child, I did childish things. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And he didn't say that as an indictment. He said that as an encouraging thought. Number two, this kind of childlikeness is not condoning primal decision-making that we should go back to. Your children, as they're younger and they begin to kind of hopefully be formed out of this, they make primal decisions. Um, A recent conversation that I've had with uh, my kids is my son wants me to buy him a spaceship. He says, Dad, buy me a spaceship. I said, I don't have the money. Spaceships are expensive. His response to me, Dad, work. Which I I give my wife credit for this. She has taught my son that the way in which you get money is to work. But then now he's turned to that on me. He says, so you're lazy is what you're saying. But my point, my job as a father is to follow up with that and say that you shouldn't want a spaceship right now. It's not your highest need, right? Right? But children have primal decision-making in that what they want, they'll go after. This is why if you say, hey, don't go grab into the cookie jar for your eighth cookie, I've already given you seven, and they go after the eighth, it's your job to say "Eight's no good. If you're not doing that, we got a parenting class coming up for you, okay? But the Bible's not condoning that. The Bible's also not endorsing being unreasonable, uh, being ignorant, or lacking wisdom. Jesus is called the very wisdom of God, so that's not happening here. Or how about... Teaching us to be so reliant upon others that we need someone to nudge us when we need to go to the bathroom to tell us to go to the bathroom, right? That's what happens with your kids. It's not condoning that kind of behavior. So what is the Bible saying? Well, I want to point out what I think you and I are assuming the Bible's saying that's way more cultural than it is biblical and then point out what Jesus actually says. What you and I might assume he's saying is that we should return to childlike innocence, but that's not what he says. In fact, our inclination of childlike innocence often comes more from our culture than it does from the Bible. The Bible says that since sin entered the world, we don't, we're not born into the world innocent. They were born into the world both shaped, molded, and tarnished by sin. But you know, the reason that we believe this is because there's a hint of truth to it, right? Like there's these times where your children will do something so innocent, and you like, you want to catch it right on camera because you're like, that's so sweet. And the reason you want to catch that though, just to bring this bring this to your mind is because it's so rare. (laughs) Because there is the time they're doing things like in a young version of what you and I do all the time, which is more sinful things, right? No, Jesus doesn't say we need to be like children because we need to return to childlike innocence. Instead, look at what he says in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's the humility of kids that he's saying we need to model. It's the humility of children, not the innocence of children, the humility of children. What is humility? Humility is an honest assessment of who you are in light of who God is. An honest assessment of who you are in light of who God is. Now, you might be saying, well, children don't have the ability to do that, court. They don't honestly assess. And I think that's part of the point is that they don't even have to assess it. They just naturally kind of recognize where they are in the framework of, let's say, like the family unit. Like they know they're not the ones in charge, right? Right even though they might act to be. And you and I, because we now have the revealed word and we have Christ, humility is recognizing who God is and then in light of that, who we are. It looks something like this. God's completely holy and then we recognize that we're sinners. God's completely strong. We recognize our weakness. God's all merciful. We realize we're kind of judgy, right? Right? Humility allows us to see ourselves in juxtaposition against God. When God gets removed, we start to build our identity by looking at each other and then pride ensues because we can say, at least I'm better than my neighbor, Mary, right? And then we start feeling better about ourselves than we ought, right? But it's this quality alone that Jesus leans into here, the humility. It's, and I think it's intricately related to the conversations that lead up to this point. Now, let's walk through this. Transfiguration. You long for glory, and it's only found in Christ. Well, how do you access it? Okay, I I want that glory. I want to experience the glory of Jesus, but how do I do it, court? Jesus walks down the mountain, and what's the lesson he teaches? Faith. The only way that you access and experience the glory of Christ in a day-to-day basis is by faith alone. You can't do anything to work for it you can't be good enough for it. It's only faith in the person of Christ that gives you access to this glorious Jesus. Now, why does, what does that have to do with the next lesson of greatness? Well, faith is only exercised with those who possess humble hearts. Let me put it like this. You can't please God until you recognize that you're not God. Augustine said at the end of his life, the great theologian, there are two things that I've learned to know and to know with great confidence. There is a God and I am not him. That's fundamental, Right? And it might sound so basic. Oh, it is basic. And yet, and yet, to put it another way, you can't exercise faith in God while you're spending so much time pretending to be him in your own life. We are too busy LARPing around, live action role-playing God in our own lives to actually exercise faith in him. And that's part of the problem. So let's walk through this. How, How do we experience God's glory? We experience it by faith. How do we access that faith? It's by humbling ourselves before God. And then believing in the one true Son of God. Now, I want you to focus in on here on, on verse number three. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you won't even enter the kingdom. What's that language, turn? Where have you heard that before? Acts chapter two. Peter tells the people who are there listening to him, very first time the gospel's preached, turn, repent, and save yourself from this crooked generation, right? Turn. This idea of repentance is woven into Jesus' words here. He's saying that unless we repent fundamentally at the very initial and recognize that we're not God, we can't enter the kingdom. This mirrors Jesus' words in John 3 to Nicodemus when he says you have to be born again. Why is the child used as an analogy here? Because he's saying you gotta become a spiritual baby. You gotta recognize what you don't know. And that you need to recognize that what you don't know is a lot more than what you think you don't know right now. And that's actually fundamental to what it means to be a Christian is that you have to come to God open-handed and say, the way I've been trying to wire my life is a complete mess and it's my fault. And I need you. I need you to step in. I need you to save me for myself. I need grace. Then he goes on in verse four to say, the the greatest in the kingdom will be those who humble themselves like kids. On Wednesday, we were able to go to the property a little bit and celebrate purchasing the land. And so we brought all the kids because we, we do that specifically as, as much as we can. We try to bring all the kids along. It wasn't the best decision. There was a cotton melt snake there and uh, a pretty big one actually. And so I don't know if that's an omen. I probably need to go back and kill this snake just for the sake of all of us. But nonetheless, we, we had the kids there and and they were running around. And I was just thinking of it in, in light of the sermon. Like what do we do if we were observing these kids? Put yourself in the eyes of the disciples. You know, we had the kids they are playing, they're falling down, getting up, laughing, having a good time curiosity. They're wandering around. They're way more apt to want to go into the woods than any of the parents are. Like, we're all kind of standing around. They keep going further than we want them to go. Like, hey, come back. There's snakes. There's no snakes. Big snake. You know, whatever. A few other things, though. Like, the the kids, were they're young enough. They weren't measuring themselves up to other kids just yet. Like, they weren't focused heavily on appearances. Like, there weren't any brand checking going on with clothing or shoes, I noticed. There wasn't any jockeying for social clout, namely because there is no social clout available for them in that instance. But I also recognize that even though they may pretend to be, they know they're not the decision makers in the room. They know they're not the ones in charge. And they were focused more on enjoying themselves rather than trying to express their you know, power in the room. Because they knew that their parents are there and they're the ones who are going to tell them when we're going to dinner and when we're leaving. And I think that what Jesus is after here is that what's fundamental to faith is that you and I recognize we are not the ones on the throne. You and I fundamentally have to recognize God calls the shots and our enjoyment of him is intricately tied to how willing we are to accept that. Not just at a theoretical level, but at a functional level. Like our everyday life, our joy is attached to how much we're willing to relinquish into the hands of almighty God. And the more we maintain and retain for ourselves, which by the way is called pride, the less joy we get to experience in the glory of Christ. Now you might be saying, why are you talking about pride court? We can't talk about humility unless we talk about pride. It's two sides of the same coin, right? So if humility is self-awareness in light of who God is, then pride is this perverted kind of grandiose self-obsession that neglects God altogether. So our very first parents exercised pride because they, they were self-obsessed, but They were self-obsessed in a way that removed God from his place. We want to create a scenario where we are gods, where we supplant God from his throne, and where we create a world in our own image and in our own likeness that we don't get to revel in the fact that we were created in the image of God, but we want to have the world created in our image. This is pride. Pride's always craving, never satisfied. Why? Because just like the lesson on the Mount of Transfiguration Pride eliminates God from the equation, taking away our source of drink, our source of food, our source of sustenance, our source of joy, and then trying to find it everywhere else. So pride tries to define the self, finds, them, finds itself miserable at the task, but then just keeps trying to do it on a loop, right? Pride tries to define the self apart from God, and then you realize that you don't live up to your own self-identity, so you just try something else. We've been doing this since middle school, right? And, and we kind of continue to do that on a loop. The reason adults are so much more apt to be inundated with pride is because we grew into adults. And as children go into adulthood, they grow in self-awareness and they grow in awareness of the hierarchy of the world. And so the reason I say middle school is because it's around middle school, maybe so earlier for some of you, especially the gals in the room. Gals, y'all become way more self-aware quick, more quickly than guys. I know it's not good for me to be gender stereotypical. It's just true. All right, girls are typically, they, they recognize things more quickly. I'm like, guys are on on the whole, less observant, and it starts pretty early. Like girls, kind of look around and they they see things that are happening socially that young boys are just totally not aware of. And guys, we almost, some of us just never grow out of it. Like me, it's like my wife could pick up on things that are happening in a room, had no idea they were happening. And this happens too with children, but nonetheless, they still kind of boy or girl, they get to this place where they start asking these kind of questions: Who am I? Where do I fit? Where do I contribute? These identity questions. It's why, if you're a parent in the room, as your kids get into the middle school, high school age, it's a, it's a struggle because there's this wrestling going on internally. This internal dialogue is happening, and they are wrestling with something that's very fundamental to the human experience. We grapple with this idea. And the reason that this turns to pride is because pride cares about what everyone else thinks except for God including yourself, right? This is pride. Pride is every opinion, every affirmation or deaffirmation, every approval or disapproval matters except God. You could see this very obviously on social media, right? It's like everyone's likes or dislikes or comments or not comments. It doesn't even have to be an overtly evil comment towards you. It could just be that somebody that you really know and are close to didn't like it. That must mean that therefore they disapprove of it. And that just crushes you. And it it crushes younger people even more. It's like, do they think I'm not pretty? Do they think I'm not likable? Do they think I'm not smart? Do they think I'm not acceptable? And so, but notice what's completely removed from the situation, what God thinks about you. That becomes basically remotely useless, especially to young people. And we think as adults that we start to move beyond this. But here's what I'll say. We get better at coping with it, but we really just become more and more cynical, more and more uh, hardened to the idea. Like We start saying things like this. Well, I don't care what they think. As though, as though other people's opinions don't matter at all. But it's because we haven't learned to actually apply the truth of the gospel, which is, yeah, okay, I care what other people think. I just don't care what other people think as much as I care about what God thinks. And people can be wrong, amen? People can be wrong. Hey, listen, if people can be dumb, people can be wrong. And people can be dumb. Exhibit A, okay? <laughs> all right, C.H. Spurgeon said this, the demon of pride was born with us and it will not die one hour before us. See, some of us, we think there's going to be a time we've conquered that we have slayed the demon of pride. We picture ourselves as Gandalf, who comes back as Gandalf the white after slaying the dragon. And that's the day. One day I'm going to come back as the greater version of my Christian self having slain the dragon of pride. Spurgeon says, no, it will be with you not one hour before you die. The very last moments as you're breathing your last, it'll still be vying for your heart because you're born with it. And so was I. So how do we combat that? Well, Jesus says this, the humble man recognizes his need for God and places faith in him, in Jesus Christ, to both heal him from pride and save him so that he might experience the glory of Christ in communion with God again. That joy, that peace. But listen, it's not just joy and peace, it's contentment, it's rootedness, it's security. We're a very fragile society because we're a very insecure society because we don't have rootedness in the person of Christ. We're all looking for our identity in all of these glue-and-tape ways, and therefore we're very fragile. If you don't think we're fragile, think about how angry we get whenever someone disagrees with us. (laughs) Listen, Jesus is teaching us this. The only pathway to true greatness is, check this out, wake up, look squarely at your face in the mirror, and realize this one thing, you're not great. I know that's not popular. Like, listen, my third grade teacher told me I am great and that only I'm that great. No one else. I'm like a snowflake, just like me, only me, great. And listen, I'm not saying that you're not made in the image of God. You have unique gifts. You're valuable. You have dignity. You have purpose. Those are all true. You're not great. God is great. Here's what you are. Here's what I am. I'll just use myself so I'm not so offensive. I'm messy prideful, self-indulgent, weak. See, now, only then when I look at myself in the mirror and I tell myself the truth, then I can look up to God and what do I see there? He is great. He needs no one. He is consistent. He's never changing. He is exalted, holy, perfect, powerful, full of might. And this is the key, and love someone like me. And, and not just like, oh yeah, I, I, I pity him. No, loves me, wants me, desires me. How do I know that? Because of the story of Jesus. Because Jesus walked to the cross to have communion with me. Wants me. Someone like me. Now, there's nothing more humbly than this, is there? Listen, if you've heard the gospel and you think that the gospel made you feel pride, you've missed the gospel. The gospel's humbling. It's all that needed to be done in order to welcome a sinner like me, and it was done because I was loved. That's a humbling thought. It's like receiving a gift at a Christmas party, and you forgot to bring a gift. Like, oh, man, this is terrible. But in another sense, it's all, recept- it's all reception. Kidding. Okay, now, why is it tough to do this, though? Why is it tough? I don't want to absolve all your guilt, but I want to put a little pressure release valve on you right now because if you're not feeling it, then maybe we're not reading the text well enough. Why is it tough? Because if we're honest, we're pretty prideful. Here's why it's tough. You and I live in a world that is steeped in pride. You are now treading water in it without knowing it. The world that we live in is steeped in pride. It's just a big ocean of pride. Now, I could start by the most basic. I, I saw this stat, and I probably should have remembered it, but I don't remember it, so I won't try to butcher it. But it's in the thousands of how many selfies are taken every day. You guys know that? It's incredible. I wish I had the number just to shock you, how many selfies are taken. And listen, if you're a selfie person, more power to you, man. I'm good for it. I'm just saying it's a little excessive. Like the amount of selfies that we take. And then it's like you take the first one, you look at it, you, you see it, it's not good, change the angle. Change the filter, change the color, you know, change the lighting. Girls, admit the truth right now. Let's come on. We're in church, let's do this thing. The reason for the selfie generation is not just technological advances. It's because for years now, probably a century, we have turned as a society to embrace the cult of self-definition. We have changed. At some point, we changed our definition of what it meant to be a human being, our identity, from you gain that from God and from community to you gain that from your own self-discovery. We tell our children, listen to this, when they try to figure out in this world of craziness who they are, we tell them, you got to figure that out for yourself. And we think that that's freeing And we think that that's strengthening them. And we think that that's healthy. Because to do anything else would be to impose our own views on them. And God forbid that. Let me tell you something. That's madness. It's never been true in the history of the world. And it never goes well. Tell me if your child needs to figure out the way home. If you told them, figure it out. Would you be seen as a good parent? When they're five, let's say. And yet, this is how we've decided to go about our business of raising our own children. And this is an irony of sorts. Why? Because we are a more internally displaced society than, we've been, than maybe in the history of the world. We don't know who we are. And so we're in crisis, both children and adults. We abandon our kids to fend for themselves. It's, it's deemed a great evil to give them any identity, tell them who they are. Even so much as, and listen to me, I'm going to go ahead and get canceled, even so much as to tell them what gender they are. We can't do that. God forbid. Let them figure it out on their own. We can't even tell them the identifiers of how they might find out who, what gender they are. No, let them figure it out on their own. Let them feel around in the dark. And listen, I want to say this because I think it's important. Some of you were raised that way. It's why you do it to your kids. But it's just like teaching your kid to swim by throwing him in the deep into the pool because that's what dad did to you. Maybe it worked for you. Maybe it drowns your kid. It doesn't make it the right way. It's sad. You know, we, we find ourselves imposing upon our children by giving them any semblance of identity. And I think it's I know that this is not going to be popular, but it's, it is absolute madness. Our modern pride has so pervasively dominated our culture that I can't even talk about humility without talking about this. Because if you don't know that you're swimming in a culture full of pride, then you might think that you could just sit still and you'll be okay. Let me say this. Perhaps there was a time in human history. I want to make room for this. I'm dubious about whether this is true or not, but I, perhaps there was a time in human history where you could have felt confident that because of the Christian culture that surrounded your family, there were bumpers around your kids and around you from falling off the cliff too drastically. Like maybe there was a time. I know that that's historically, some people say that. It's like, well, you know, the reason it's so dangerous right now is because, you know, we don't have the the Christendom culture around us in order to guard us from the worst. And okay, maybe that's true. Let me tell you something that was is not even debatable. That's not where you are now, though. Just eliminate that from your mind. You are not in that culture that has bumpers around you and your kids where it's not all that dangerous if they try to figure out their way. Maybe that's too theoretical. What I mean is it's not like letting your kid out in the backyard to figure out and explore because there's fences and you know they're gonna be okay. That's not what you're doing whenever you're not helping your kids find identity right now by speaking life into them. What you're doing is sending them out into Yosemite National Park on the top of peaks, hoping they don't fall off. That's what's happening in our culture. Or maybe a better analogy would be getting in the middle of the rapids at Niagara Falls and saying, I hope they learn how to swim. The very air you breathe and the very air that I breathe is confirming to us that our life is our own to define at the very basic and fundamental sense of the word and that anyone who disagrees with you or me about our lived experience and our lived truth deserves to be canceled because how dare they disagree with what I've decided I am. And so I just want to say as we think through this, these cultural considerations, don't assume you're standing still. Picture yourself in this culture as you are in the midst of rapids and they are pulling you a direction. And to really apply Jesus' words here means that you're going against the stream just to stay in one spot. In the Old Testament, they used to have this idea called blessing. You see this all the way from Genesis throughout. And it's where the fathers would bless their children, look them in the eyes upon their death and bless them. In light of who God is, this is who you are, son, and they would speak life to them. And listen, the blessing was so important that they would shed tears if you missed the blessing, hence Esau. He goes out to hunt for his dad. Jacob kind of slithers in and does his thing. And then Esau's weeping because he doesn't get the blessing because your identity from then on is going to be lived out of these words that were spoken to you. And every single parent knew this as their intrinsic responsibility to give blessings to their kids, to speak identity to them. And then there's our culture that decides we're going to say nothing. Our culture decides we're not going to be blessing our kids at all. We're just going to let them kind of figure it out, wade through it all. And this is sad, of course, why? Because our our kids are going through identity crisis after identity crisis, after identity crisis. And then here they are. Here's the responsible parties, the parents, the ones that God's called in order to impart to the next generation. And we're just silent. We're not telling them. And I, I really want to, I can't overstate this. You need to be blessing your children. And if you're not a parent in the room, I want to tell you this, this has nothing to do with marital status. You need to be blessing the next generation too. You have an influence. You have a part to play in the next generation, 100%. It's not just parents in the room. It's grandparents. It's singles. It's everyone that's under the sound of my voice. Are we blessing the next generation and speaking the truth of God to them, who they are in light of who God is, looking at them and saying, you are gods. You are loved. You are valuable. You have dignity. You have purpose. And then, check this out, and then when you fall short of your identity, Christ has paid the price for you and will welcome you back. And you run to Jesus, he forgives you, and he reminds you of who you are. You see, our culture, we know we're struggling with identity. We have no framework for atonement. And yet we can't shake that feeling that we need to make atonement. You wondered what cancel culture really is? It's atonement. It's atonement theory. It's, there's something that's gone wrong with the world. There's something that's gone wrong in me. But I, when I find out what's gone wrong in someone else, rather than addressing what's gone wrong in me, it feels good to cast every dispersion I can at that nameless online face and ruin them so that they can get far away from me so I feel cleansed a little bit of whatever's gone wrong in the world. You see, the Old Testament, Israel, they called this the scapegoat. All of the sins of the whole people were preyed upon this goat. They took this goat far away from them. And they felt cleansed. It was called the doctrine of expiation. Our culture has abandoned any of this, and yet they still know they have a need for it. And so they do it in this really weird way where we blame each other and we never take personal responsibility. We blame each other, but we, ha- we still have this nagging sense that, check this out, as bad as that person that you just canceled online is, you and me both have this nagging sense that we're that bad too. And if we're just waiting to be found out. We joke about it with some friends like we're just waiting for somebody to find out these home videos I made. God, thank God there was no Facebook when I was a kid. Someone's going to find a home video of mine, you know, where one of those cassettes. You, you guys remember when we used to do cassettes and you recorded stuff? Oh, we know. They exist. All your talk radio that you used to do with your friends. We're all afraid this stuff's going to come out and then boom, we're going to get exploded. Because we know deep down we're equally as bad. And yet Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, offers to us another way. You see, we need to be about the business of blessing our kids and then pointing to them. When you don't live up to your identity, don't go into the blame game. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Run to Jesus because he's a forgiving God. And so I want to end with this question, and that is, why does Jesus use children? Is it incidental, like an analogy, like sometimes you just pick up something and you use it as a wordplay, or is it fundamental? I think it's fundamental to his point. In verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoa, we could do a whole sermon on that one. Receiving a child is receiving, like receiving Christ. Okay. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That is an intense warning. But he doesn't even stop there. He continues, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary for temptations to come. But woe to the one by whom temptation comes. This is important. He's saying temptations are going to come, but Jesus is warning those who would either A, actively tell the next generation that things that are right are wrong and things that are wrong are right and tempt them to sin. He's saying, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself in the middle of Lake Houston than to lead kids astray because they're so malleable. And whenever you tell them, whatever you tell them, they'll believe and take it to the bank. Or, and this is what we need to hear right now as Christians, or we are still culpable if we say nothing. If we leave our children directionless, we are no better. If we, if we say, figure it out on your own, but we don't give them the God-given direction in the scriptures, how are we any better than leading them astray actively? The answer is there are both sins of commission and omission, and there, that is a grave sin of omission. We need to be actively pointing to this is who God is, and this is who you are, and this is how you ought to live in the world. But then he goes on. And this is basically a Sermon on the Mount talk, but he uses it here instead. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, and throw it away, it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. (laughs) Hope the red red lights are going on with these warnings. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, and throw it away, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire, red lights, warning. That's scary. What does he say here? Well, let's just walk through it. If your hand causes you to sin or becomes this, the instrument of temptation, it's better to cut the thing off. If your eye becomes the instrument of temptation, it's better for you to pluck the thing out. If you are the instrument of temptation, fill in the blank. That's what he says. If you and I become the instrument of temptation rather than the instrument of good for God's glory to our children and the next generation, we deserve to be cut off. That's how bad it is. That if your influence is actually actively leading them astray, Cut the hand off, right? Cut the eye out. That's how serious Jesus takes it. Now, why, why use this, uh, this kid's analogy here? Jesus, why are you going this route? Well, when we think of greatness, we rarely think of things like children's ministry, do we? Anybody else? Like when you think of statues of great men and women who are chiseled into stone, who were they? We don't typically think the ones who are teaching our children right now. We don't typically think of youth ministers, right? We're like, oh, youth ministry. Ha! The stepping stone to greatness. How about this? When we think of greatness, moms, do you think of your job or do you think of motherhood itself? How well you do in your career or how well you do at home? Dads, same thing. Do you think of how well you're doing in your career? How much you're climbing that ladder? Or are you thinking how you're investing at home? Typically, don't think of teachers being etched into the monuments in the Washington Mall. And yet, Jesus says the greatest among you will be the ones who are receiving the children and becoming like them, investing, imparting into the next generation. Another question to ask might be something like this You might think of greatness and say, Well, like the disciples, how am I going to be remembered? And I don't think that's a terrible thought if it's framed well. But here's the question Jesus is asking you. What exactly are you imparting to the next generation? Because that will form you to be remembered for good. It's not, how will people remember me? The question we should be asking is, what am I actually pouring into the next generation that inevitably will remember me? C.H. Spurgeon said this, he said, you may speak but a word to a child, and in that child there may be a slumbering noble heart which shall stir the Christian church in years to come. I loved Spurgeon because he was known as the Prince of Preachers, probably no one more famous than this man for preaching, and yet regularly he comes back to children as his aim in his preaching. Why? Something that people don't know about Spurgeon was that he was very, very famous for starting orphanages. Over 100 of them in his lifetime, on top of leading the Metropolitan Tabernacle, preaching, you know, multiple times every single Sunday, you know, he's, he's the man that people would sail across the Atlantic to come and listen to preach. And what did he spend his time doing? Caring for kids. And here he gives you a snapshot into the way in which he views legacy. You don't even know the child that you spoke the word of life into if that would be the slumbering heart through which God re- rose up the next Billy Graham. Could you imagine the person who, spoke, who was Billy Graham's children's ministry leader? Who knew, right? Like, who knew? Who knew that, you know, you would be the one to be teaching old John Piper the book of Romans whenever he was five? Only for him to preach the book of Romans for 14 straight years. Nobody knows is the answer. And yet Jesus says if you want to know what true greatness looks like, it's how do we engage and impart with the next generation? How do we view greatness? Nehemiah is a book that was written to talk about a a real fight that was going on in the children of Israel's history. Nehemiah returned from Babylonian exile with a few, a handful of, of really, radical and passionate Israelites who wanted to rebuild the temple and they wanted to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And he knew opposition. This man knew what it was like to be in a fight. He was not in a culture that was positive towards his building. At one point, he's building with one trowel in one hand, the wall, and in his other hand, he has a sword to defend himself from the people who are actively trying to kill him as he builds. His buddy Ezra is trying to build, rebuild the temple because they want the city of God to be rebuilt again, but there's a lot of people who are against this. And at the end of it all, they end up succeeding in their endeavors, and they rebuild it, and they call the people of God to repentance. And Ezra stands forth, and he reads the word of God for the first time in years. And people come humbly, and they repent. And then at the very end of the book, Nehemiah has one line. It's always stuck with me. You don't have to turn there because it's very short. He says this after he records everything about his journey. Remember me, oh my God, for good. That's all he says. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And the question I want to leave you with this morning is this. Are you living to be remembered by man or to be remembered by God? What matters most to you, to be remembered by people or to be remembered by Jesus? Nehemiah did so many great things, and he engaged with people. He wasn't an isolated man, but his primary goal was to please God. Because here's what I could promise you is when you live to be remembered by God, you may not be remembered by man on this side of things, but the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming where God will exalt those who were of low estate. I can't wait for the day where we sit at the marriage supper and God begins to show us the people who are highly exalted in his kingdom. We won't even know their names. We'll be like, who? I know what we're thinking. It's all Tim Keller, let's bring him up. You know, everybody's like, "Woo, Tim. It's gonna be someone you didn't even know existed. It's gonna be some children's ministry worker that labored in prayer on her knees for the children. It's going to be some guy out in the middle of nowhere who never even got married, committing his life to the orphans in some really remote country. We didn't even know. The book of Hebrews calls these people this, of whom the world was not worthy. And so, friends, I want to to lay before you this option. We could continue in what our culture offers to us, which is worldly greatness, which is really just such a futile effort. Like, it's just, if the pandemic's done nothing else, doesn't it make the Oscars look lame? Who cares? The truth is, not many people. And then there's this thing over here, which is eternal greatness offered to us in Christ by living the low way of Jesus and caring about those who who few people in the world even know exist. And here's the starting line for us, Providence. It starts with the little ones right next to us. Let's invest there and be remembered from God for good. You'll stand to your feet. I'll pray for us. Lord, I just want to confess to you that when I look at myself in the mirror, there's not not an everyday regular recognition of just how much I need you because I think of myself more highly than I ought, and so I ask for your forgiveness. Father, I pray that those under the sound of my voice that... This would not be a sermon received about marital status, but it would be for the body of Christ to recognize our responsibility to impart, humbly impart to the next generation the gospel. Everyone under the sound of my voice, my God, I ask, would we rally around this call for we are but one generation from losing anything that might be meaningful or beautiful But Lord, we're also one generation away from seeing the gates of hell not prevailing against the movement of our very kids who are in love with you, Jesus. And so I just, I pray for, I wanna take the lead here by praying for something special in the next generation, something greater than us, greater than we could ever be, Lord. Would you even now begin to anoint our children to understand true greatness and to walk in that, that we would speak life into who they are and their identity and that they would be humbly confident in who they are in you. And Lord, help us to know what that looks like and what it means. And, and Lord, help us to repent where we've fallen short, but not to, not to grovel or to be condemned, but to just run to you because your arms are open wide. God, help us to do that. And even as we sing now and take of your supper, I pray there'd be deep conviction, but deep joy in the life that's offered through your broken body and shed blood for us. God, give us that reminder of the empty tomb as we sing.